Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Be Bold America is a live bi-weekly talk show for those who are motivated to step out with the bold actions necessary to reunite this country, fight for democracy, and learn what they can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to reclaim our democratic republic. Our future depends on it. Our program today is Collective Trauma, Reuniting a Dystopian America. What we have been seeing on our streets and on our television screens is a dystopian America. We have seen ourselves a society that is undesirable and frightening. We have watched the actualization of a world where the state of our society produces great injustice and suffering for large segments of our population. What is collective trauma? How does it manifest in combat, mass shootings, and from visions of police in riot gear using military force against fellow Americans? How does collective trauma impact our response to the pandemic? How did collective trauma affect the rise of white supremacy and privilege? How can understanding collective trauma assist us in reuniting America and save our democracy? We have big things to do. We have two guests today from Walden University who are on the phone. From the West Coast, we have Dr. Pettis Perry. Dr. Perry is a full-time faculty member at Walden University, where he teaches a variety of leadership and management courses in the Master of Science in Leadership and Master of Science in Management degree programs. He provides technical assistance and training to an array of schools, government agencies, nonprofit organizations, and small and large businesses. In response to students describing their personal traumas, and in response to the trauma produced by the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Perry produced webinars titled, Creating a Meaningful Life in the Aftermath of Trauma, and Self-Care in Times of Crisis, Living in a Topsy-Turvy World. Welcome, Dr. Perry. Happy to have you on the program today. Thank you, Jill, and happy Father's Day. <laughs> well, I'm a mother, but... <laughs> Father State, everybody else, <laughs> the fathers out there. How are you? And also, in full disclosure, Pettis and I have been friends for, I think, 20 years when we were colleagues together at San Jose State University. You think that's about right, Pettis? Uh, at least 20 years, I think. <laughs> On the East Coast, we have Dr. Michael Gatson. Dr. Gatson is an Army veteran, author, professor, an expert in military social work and psychology with issues related military mental health. He currently serves as the director of a mental health clinic in the VA Maryland healthcare system. Dr. Gatson has a Bachelor of Science degree in psychology from Northwestern and a master's in social work from Grambling State University and a PhD in psychology from Walden University. He has published in several professional journals and has a new children's book entitled, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. Welcome, Dr. Gatson. Thank you, too, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Well, just quickly, uh, Michael, before we just dive into things, what is your children's book about? So the children's book is a book that talks about PTSD and explains it from a children's perspective and a children's lens. And explains in detail about post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Well, and I wanted to say both uh, links to um, Dr. Perry's webinars and to Dr. Gatson's new book are on my page, Be Bold America page, on the ksqd.org website. To dive right in, uh, Pettis, how do you define collective trauma, and have we been experiencing it these past weeks between our current presidency, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the continuing racial injustices, and how might collective trauma and their after effects contribute to what we are witnessing in society? Well, Michael may have uh, a bit more to say about it, but generally speaking, when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about people being wounded. And when we talk about collective trauma, we're talking about large groups of people sharing an experience and then also being traumatized in some cases uh, by those experiences. And I, can, I think we can see it play out uh, when we think about the pandemic. Uh, and the, the kind of fears that have now been stoked uh, when a person coughs in or around us, we start thinking about whether they might have uh, COVID-19, uh, whereas before the pandemic occurred, that would have never been a thought. Uh, we're now trying to adjust to masks. Uh, so it's a very different kind of, of lifestyle. It's disrupting uh, our, our typical way of being, and it helps to produce trauma. Uh, and in terms of the demonstrations, uh, I think that that's the result of centuries of trauma that's been pent up. And I think people are ready to respond to the things that have been happening to them in a way that we've done previously, um, but with technology, it's actually manifesting itself a bit differently. Well, Michael, um the, the collective trauma around, well, mass shootings, for one, my husband uh, fought in Vietnam, and when we were having mass shootings in our schools, it really upset him. Interestingly, we haven't had any because of the uh, pandemic, and we, the schools aren't open. But what's the collective trauma around uh, mass shootings, and also seeing police like soldiers, like military soldiers in our streets to our society. Michael? Well, I just want to speak a little bit about when we're speaking of collective trauma, knowing that trauma can be both primary and secondary and important. Mm -hmm. Both primary and secondary, and just because individuals were not present for a life-threatening incident does not mean it's not impact them. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination in 1968 affected the nation. People internalize other devastating experiences in what is known as secondary or vicarious trauma. And so addressing a collective trauma would not only support individuals, but also nurture a healthy society. And then how is our collective trauma um, being ex exacerbated, that's the word I wanted, uh, with the police in our streets. I've never seen that. That's very disturbing to me. The police, the well, way they were outfitted, I mean, you know. Right. So with the recent protests, we have witnessed in the media citizens being sprayed with mace in the face, officers firing rubber bullets, and they used tear gas at peaceful protests. And none of these actions by the police were necessary and none of these actions were taken to protect the people. It is important to remember why these protests are occurring in the first place. It is to raise awareness about and speak out against and demand justice for and prevent the unlawful murders 
of black Americans by police officers. And so, you know, people are upset. And so we want to make sure that we are understanding why people are coming out and protesting. Well, it must be also traumatic, not just for the protesters, um, you know, coming out with that's driving them to to act in this way for so many weeks. I'm actually very proud of them and, and very inspired by them. I would think, though, it would be also traumatic for those who are watching the television and maybe having a different response. Um, Pettis, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that the... For those who are going out into the streets and protesting, uh, I think they have a release valve uh, in some ways that people who are homebound don't have. Uh, there's no way for the person in, inside the house or someone that's not going out very frequently to really uh, provide their demonstration of, of what they're feeling. But I think that there are some differences I know that I've found it hard to watch the uh, Floyd murder. Um, I could only watch a couple of seconds of it and had to turn away from it. Uh, and just the repetitive nature of the airing of that act, I think, is part of what fueled the, uh, the demonstrations. Uh, because people are seeing what murder is looking like right in front of their eyes. Uh, I remember a time during the Vietnam War in which a Vietnamese, I believe he was a colonel or a general, came out and shot a Viet Cong uh, in the news. Uh, they only aired it once, but that's something that's ingrained on my brain, and I see that image uh, when I see the kinds of things that police are doing with indiscriminate killing. So for me, it's impacting me very deeply. And my only valve is to get out in the social media or to talk about it in shows like this or to put on webinars to try to address some of the issues. Uh, but it's prevalent. Uh, and I, I, like you, I'm very proud of the young people and others who are out there demonstrating. Uh, and hopefully we can put what's bothering us as a nation to bed permanently. Well, in my book, uh, America Abandoned, I argued that the American people have been abandoned by many important political, um, which would be police and political parties, abandoned by important uh, political, religious, industrial, corporate, and ideological forces. You know, over the last four decades of this abandonment, I see America nearly a failing state and why it looks so dystopian to many of us. It seems to me this abandonment is an undergirding to our collective trauma around the pandemic and the racial justices because we see that our government right now isn't protecting us or didn't protect us from the pandemic. Um, so, Michael, any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. We definitely were not prepared for the pandemic, and we are not putting things in place as far as the testing sites. We're not opening up enough testing sites to prepare for the testing for the coronavirus. Um, so we're not prepared overall. Uh, Pettis? Uh, I would, uh, would agree with Michael. I see it uh, as someone who studies leadership as a failure in leadership. Mm -hmm. As I look at the various actions that the president has taken, you can actually go through step by step 
and see how he's exacerbating a problem when he should be solving a problem. Much of what we're seeing in the response to the virus is a result of his, uh, his leadership and his need to feed his ego over taking care of the people that he was elected uh, to care for. Well, failure of leadership is a failure of duty and responsibility, which is basically uh, the definition of abandonment. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org or catch up on programs by visiting the KSQD Be Bold America page or from your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Jill Cody. KSQD thanks the following recent donors who support our wonderful programs. We couldn't do the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week programming that we do for our community and worldwide without our donors. And to recognize a few, uh, Joe Palin, Stephen Principe, Donna Thompson, Florence Elliott, Margaret Madsen, thank you to you and everyone else who've donated to KSQD. Our topic today is Collective Trauma, Reuniting a Dystopian America. And we're speaking with Dr. Pettis Perry and Dr. Michael Gatson, both from Walden University. And links to Dr. Perry's webinar, Creating a Meaningful Life in the Aftermath of Trauma, and Dr. Watson's children's book, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, may be found on this show's posting on the KSQD Be Bold America page. You know, one thing, um, Pettis, I guess I'll go to you with this uh, first, is that I was reading an article written recently by uh, Cornell West in The Guardian, and it was titled, A Boot is Crushing the Neck of American Democracy. And he was asking the fundamental question at this moment is, can the United States be reformed? And I would say reunited. Uh, thoughts about that? Uh I think there's hope for us. I, you know, as long as we exist as a nation, there's hope. Uh, we tend to be a very resilient people. Uh, and right now, we're actually at a point of judgment for what we're going to become as a nation. I believe that we are at the tipping point. It has taken more than 400 years to get here, but I think we have a chance to reimagine an America that is the inclusive America that most of us talk about. And as we begin to put aside the issue of race and superiority, I think a lot of other things are going to become uh, not only uh, brought into the light, but I have an opportunity to be changed. And we're seeing that with people talking about reimagining police departments. So I think that there's lots of hope for us. Uh, this is this is the point that I've been waiting for over the course of my lifetime, uh, as I've been a part of you know the struggles uh, that people are going through now, uh, and so I, I'm very hopeful. I'm excited that we may get to the point where we can finally have the kind of America that we all talk about, but has been eluding us all this time. You know, I agree, Pettis. I'm more encouraged now and hopeful than I have been for years. Michael, do you want to continue on that thought before I yeah, hit you with another I, I question? 
I'm, I, I agree as well. I, I looking at the protests and seeing everybody united and going out together. I'm more hopeful than ever. Seeing everybody going out and uniting as one. I'm more hopeful than ever. Well, what gives me hope too is that um, it's worldwide. It's not just yeah. all of our cities in this country, our own country, that's dealing with this uh, trauma, um, racial injustice for 400 years, but worldwide. And it's white people and Asian people. I mean, it's 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 so exciting. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Well, Michael, there's been public reports uh, while we're going through this pandemic and, and the co- collective trauma that, that we've been experiencing in our society. Public reports that indicate that there are increases in domestic violence and suicide rates. What are some things that listeners can take to protect themselves from those, from, from those risks? Well, you know... We are in the middle of the pandemic, and we are been told to stay at home and avoid public spaces and work remotely. And all important steps required to reduce the spread of the virus. But many people who live with someone who is abusive, this may not be the best option. And so as COVID-19 cases are rising, domestic violence cases are rising as well. And so the media has forgotten the pandemic within the pandemic when it comes to domestic violence and suicide. So if someone you love is experiencing abuse, you know, make sure they know about the National Domestic Abuse Hotline or if someone to make your life is in danger, make sure you please call 911 immediately. So the National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Want to repeat that, please? 1-800-799-7233. Thank you. And, you know, what is, is your clinical, social, psychological observations of the state of America right now? Just a small question for you. <laughs> Yeah, what is your clinical, social, psychological observations of the state of America? Right now, we're in an epidemic of anxiety. People are stressing out about being laid off and facing future layoffs, and businesses are struggling. People are really thinking about the financial future. And so right now, we're at a place of people really thinking about extreme anxiety right now. Epidemic of anxiety. Boy, that hits it yeah. on the head. Uh, Pettis, um, want to jump in here? Uh, I have to agree with Michael. That's his domain. And I was <laughs> uh, kind of interested in what he was going to say. Uh, but anxiety, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, is the number one uh, cause of, uh, of trauma, of mental, mental illness. Uh, and uh, so it's something that we have to reckon with. And what my concern is, is not only what's happening today, but once the pandemic is over uh, and once there is some resolution to the issues with the police brutality, because people are going to carry their trauma forward. And so are we going to have a surge to mental health facilities, for example? Uh, You know, will uh, will uh, some other form of uh, trauma arise because of what's, what we're going through? We have to think about today, but we also have to begin thinking about what's next uh, because I don't want to see a run 
on mental health services like we're seeing around the pandemic. And we can do better. We can plan for these things. But it's going it's to force us to put our, our resources, uh, and we must have the will to decide that we want things to be different. Um, what are some of the after effects you're th- likely to see as a result of this pandemic in that um, epidemic of anxiety? Pettis? Uh, well, I'll begin this. Uh, Michael uh, will be the better one with his uh, clinical background. But trauma impacts our behaviors, and trauma is additive. So one traumatic event may cause a particular response, but you get a second and a third and a fourth, and it begins to become overwhelming. So you may begin to feel some of the, phys- the physical uh, after effects or some of the, the, uh, the uh, emotional after effects uh, that come along with various sorts of trauma. So we have to be careful, I think, in terms of, and what Michael and I were doing with our, with our webinar, uh, we're trying to inform people about trauma, what it is, what, what forms does it come in, what are the after effects of trauma, what can we do about it, how can we move past trauma to get to post-traumatic growth uh, as a way of, of helping people go through this process. Uh, and it is a process. Uh, there's loss that comes along. Oftentimes people are losing their jobs. That's, in a, that's an example. And so they're going to grieve. Uh, and we have to have support mechanisms, whether it's professionals or build a community that is more trauma-informed so we, uh, we can help people uh, with the things that, they're, that they are experiencing uh, and will continue to experience beyond the trauma. And if I might just say one other thing, Jill, there's research that indicates that not only are we experiencing the trauma, but we could be projecting the trauma that we're experiencing now to future generations, either genetically or through the stories that we tell our children. So there's, there's the genetic side of it, and then there's also the multi-generational side that comes along with storytelling. Well, and it also seems to me that there are a couple of levels in that people have personal trauma, trauma that might have happened in their family or school or work or loss of work, and then you overlay that with societal trauma, the pandemic and uh, the racial injustices, and it just it starts to see how it could be quickly overwhelming. Michael, over to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so there is going to be a lot of mental health issues as a result of the pandemic. Um, people are going to be struggling with number the number of deaths um, as relate, relating to the pandemic. Um, but one of the things that we're going to see is technology is going to grow. Um, as me and Dr. Pettis, we work with a university that uses technology. Um, so one thing that we've seen is that everybody is starting to rely on technology during this pandemic and everybody's been trying to get their bandwidth up to get things going. As far as my full-time job, we didn't have the bandwidth to do therapy sessions. And so we're trying to get things up going to do telehealth sessions. And so technology is one of the things that everyone's going to be starting to use after this is over post-pandemic. Um, just and just to 
ask a quick question before our next break. Uh, Michael, what are your thoughts about the removal of the Confederate statues? People, I've been hearing, you know, two sides. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How's that affecting everyone? I think it's something that has been needed to happen for a long time. I think it's something that it's a, a wound that has been needed to happen um, for years. Um, so it's a trauma that people have been dealing with for years. It seems like the act of tearing them down is helping heal that trauma. Pettis, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, if you think of what the uh, the monuments represent uh, and what they've resented, represented to different groups of people, uh, some wanting to continue their legacy of superiority and others who were directly impacted by that notion of superiority. Uh, and every time we pass one of those, you know, we have our own reaction to them. I think it's long overdue. Uh, I think they should be in museums uh, as a way of talking about our history. But we have to keep making heroes. We have to stop making heroes out of people that attack our country. Uh, you know, if you want to deal with it at, at that particular level. But they, for me, some of those, uh, those very people that we're celebrating are part of the Klan. <laughs> and I have a visceral impact when I think about that. Uh, my family's been impacted by the Klan. So, you know, these are the, as you were talking about, yes, we have, we have trauma in childhood. About 60% of adults say that they had a significant childhood uh, trauma. Another 90% of people said that they've had at least one uh, significant traumatic event with the norm being multiple. So we're all, or the vast majority of us, are carrying around what, what you described as personal trauma. And then mm -hmm. something happens at work that gets added on. Something happens with the pandemic that gets added on. Something happens with police brutality that gets added on. And as I said earlier, it becomes overwhelming. And unless we address it, we carry it forward. And there are all sorts of unforeseen impacts that can affect behavior in the future uh, unless it is grappled with and resolved. And I can tell you that uh, from personal experience as a, as a trauma survivor, survivor of multiple events. So we have to deal with it. Well, high school alone is a traumatic event for most of us, just getting through that. <laughs> um, and I agree that that um, the Confederate Statues Museum is a, a perfect place to put these plaques and statues to for education. But they were put up, I think, 50 years after the Civil War to sort of in honor of, of those who fought in the Civil War. And... Uh, I heard someone say recently, and I'm sorry I can't remember it, but I thought it was just perfect. They said it's time to stop celebrating the enslavers and start celebrating the enslaved. Yeah, I, 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 I like to think it's part of that generational trauma. So I think those are just symbols of the generational trauma that people are have experienced over the years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are symbols that are attached to people's generational trauma. 
uh, for their trauma, they put them up. Is that yes. what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Our topic is Collective Trauma, Reuniting a Dystopian America. And we're speaking with Professor Pettis Perry and Professor Michael Gatson from Walden University. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Hi, I'm Tom Hartman, your host for Progressive Talk on K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, 4 p.m. weekdays. KSQD is a vital media resource for listeners in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties and worldwide on the web. Please help support this station by making a contribution to keep the station thriving. Go to ksqd.org and give what you can to help keep shows like mine coming to you daily at 90.7 FM. You know, with six large corporations owning most of the media, it's essential that listeners support grassroots, locally run radio stations like KSQD. Community radio is responsive to its listeners and isn't afraid to challenge the status quo. Please join me, Tom Hartman, in supporting KSquid 90.7 FM Community Radio for the Central Coast by making your pledge today online at ksqd.org. That's 90.7 FM KSquid. Catch me right here at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Thank you. And tag your it. Now, back to our bold and impressive guests, Dr. Pettis Perry and Dr. Michael Getson. And I have a question here uh, for both of you, actually. I'll start with you, Michael. Um, from the social, psychological, and leadership perspectives, what needs to happen to help counteract white supremacy? I think changing social norms, for instance, through education and laws, enforcing equality, and prejudice will change faster when it's confronted by people who are Pettis? Yeah, I think uh, laws are part of the structural uh, component of this, uh, but we've got to have serious, very difficult kinds of conversations to understand why people have so much hatred uh, and try to work across boundaries. We've got to, at some point, get to a place where we can have reconciliation, because without reconciliation, we can't move forward as a nation. So all the laws in the world, you know, are good because it's going to create some force and movement uh, to get people to a particular place. But you can't legislate what's in the heart. And so we have to work on the internal part of, uh, of people as well. And we've got to get them to a point where we can have genuine conversations about their fears and about, you know, what they're thinking as part of this conversation. Uh, I believe that they're outnumbered uh, in terms of people that really want to move beyond the kind of status quo that we have. Uh, but we have to engage them, and we have to be open with them to really understand how we all can come together to create a new, a reimagined America that works better for everybody. And I firmly believe that as we... Uh, help lift everybody up to a different state, if we can all become equal in the eyes of the other, then we've traveled a long way. It took us 400 years. You know, we're not talking about something as new. Uh, so I, I think that we have to get inside, work with people, in addition to having uh, things codified uh, so that there are repercussions if laws are broken or people are hurt. Well, we're talking about a, a collective trauma and a dystopian nation. What 
What role has white supremacy and white privilege played into creating our dystopian nation? Pettis, why don't you continue, and we'll then go to Michael. Sure. Uh, if you think about our history, it has produced what we are seeing today. Uh, we are here with people in the streets because of supremacy, of one one race of people, and race is really a figment, figment of our, our imagination, it's a, a convenience, uh, but one group of people who are trying to retain power uh, and wealth uh, and to live a particular way. Uh, I heard one guy said, yeah, I want to keep my privilege. Well, him keeping his privilege means somebody else may be underprivileged or not privileged at all. So we've got to we've got to get to this place where we can set white percent white uh, supremacy aside. Uh, white people didn't build this world. This they didn't build the United States. You know, and if we have a frank conversation about the genocide of the Native American, the enslavement of African Americans. Uh, berating every other culture that's come into this country uh, with the one difference being that some can meld into that what's been the dominant country. But we have a whole history, a whole set of values, a whole uh, set of systems and laws that are trying to keep us back to where things are today. And that, that kind of stuff has to be dismantled uh, and rebuilt in a way that is more favorable uh, for equality uh, in terms of how we live in our society. Michael? I agree with Dr. Pettis 100%. We have to make sure that we're focusing on equality and things are fair across the board and where the laws are in place for everyone and not just for one race. Well, it seems, um, you know, thinking back to the person that you mentioned, Pettis, that says, I want to keep my privilege, and that means somebody else doesn't. How do we change that, the mindset? Because um, the privilege is to their benefit. Uh, it's sort of hard for them to start thinking about somebody that's underprivileged as long as it's sort of like that uh, uh, if I win, you lose kind of mentality. How do we get people yep. to think that if we are working on this, that 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 we all win? Pettis? Well, I, I think if you you know look at what's happening, people that flaunt their privilege uh, really aren't um, aren't benefiting because they're being given stuff that everybody else has to work for. So what do you learn in that process? That you live off of everybody else. You know, we have to. Uh, as I said earlier, have these difficult conversations about what's driving people. And we have to, uh, uh, what my mother used to always say, and she was, uh, she was a firm activist, is that it's all about the children. So if you look at some of the pictures of Klansmen with their three-year-olds three uh, in Klan uh, outfits or uniforms, whatever they call them, they're beginning with their children to raise them in a particular way. And what we have to do is to do things like integrate schools uh, and to make sure that resources are shared across systems. Uh, we can 
uh, build into to, to all of our curricula things that uh, relate to an actual history. When I grew up, there was very little, if any, mention of African Americans except as slaves. You go to the uh, National uh, Museum, the Smithsonian, in Washington, D.C., I think it's 450,000 square feet, five levels. And you see contributions of African Americans uh, throughout the centuries. So we need to be honest and start from a place of honesty, own the past, and then let's move on and build a better future. And at some point, there's going to be enough critical mass where everybody else is going to get dragged along. We may not be able to change their heart because there are some diehard people that want to believe they uh, have supreme right over other peoples around the world. But I think that if you look at what we've seen globally, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier about the demonstrations, I think you're, you're seeing an entire world that is rejecting that idea of supremacy. But we're going to have to pull it out of their hands. They're not, most of them are not going to give it up easily. That's what Frederick Douglass said. <laughs> Michael? That's right. You know, I think we just need to really take a look at our Constitution and really think, you know, and look at it and see, does it really apply for every person that lives in the United States? Because when we look at the Constitution and really go at it, and look at it a fine tooth. Does it apply to every single person that lives in the United States? Hmm. Or is it just for one particular race? And that's the growing pains we're in now, I think. It has been for yeah. one particular. We're in that the birth of, a, of, of labor here to get us to see it's for everyone. Just, you know, getting back to a, a dystopian nation, Pettis, um, what can we learn from leadership that can explain how we became this dystopian nation? Well, uh, as somebody that studies leaders, if, if you look at how leaders make decisions uh, and how they then act on those decisions, you, you learn a lot about the person uh, himself. And so uh, if you were to sit down and just diagram out every single thing, you could see where the, where the missteps took place. One of them was getting rid of anything that had Obama's name on it. Big mistake. There was an entire unit in the White House that was set up to deal with pandemic. What do we do? Two years before a pandemic, we get rid of that unit. So now we're not in a position to actually respond to the pandemic. You know, we, we look at the failure to actually exercise uh, the president's right to order a company to produce uh, materials in response to the, uh, the pandemic. And what do we get in terms of the types of leadership decisions that were made is, no, let's make it a free-for-all. You know, those, those, are, those decisions are costing lives. Much of this did not have to happen the way that it is happening. Uh, but you see, and, and the beautiful thing about leadership, leadership is the study of human behavior in groups. And so if you look at the human behavior in our groups, you can see what's happening with the leadership. The leader says, no mask. So what do we have? 9,000 people show up to a convention with no mask. Had he taken the position that I'm going to 
manufacture MAGA masks, uh, I'm willing to bet that his people would have been wearing them, you know, or at least a, a sizable percentage. So, you know, leadership is, is extremely important. And then within that context, you have to look at the culture of the organization of the society uh, or whatever unit you're looking at because culture, in effect, dictates behavior. So the things that Michael was talking about earlier in terms of values, uh, our mores, our ethos, all of those things drive how people are going to behave. And that's actually what we're looking at getting upset in terms of the demonstrations and the very discussion that we're having. We're looking at changing our culture uh, in a way and then making sure that all of the underpinnings, the policies, the procedures, the things that we're teaching people, the way that we behave with people, the way our police treat people, all of those things then fall out from what we decide our culture is going to look like. Well, it seems that we have to do the hard work, which nobody wants to do, which is starting to look inside first. Um, you know, Absolutely. what we stand for, who, you know, who we are, how do we want to live, what's our principles, all those things have to be thought of first before we even talk to another human being. Yeah, leadership is an inside-out process. Inside-out. Growth is an, in, an inside-out process. Mm -hmm. You have to look in before you look out. And it seems to me also it's not just about ability, it's also about responsibility. And a lot of people like to be in the leadership position, but somehow don't want the responsibility. I think our current president is excellent at that. You know, it's um, always somebody else's responsibility. Um, and just shifting a little bit, Michael, but I wanted to ask you this because it's your expertise, is how are our veterans holding up during the pandemic? And and with the and with them also seeing this police brutality on our streets, um, the veterans are struggling right now. We are having some of the veterans um, are very disconnected right now, um, high anxiety, very depressed. Um, yeah, and some of them are experiencing their own trauma and generational traumas as well. Some of them are second-guessing things. They're in increased survival mode, um, decreased trust, decreased hope in the future, decreased in the justice system and the government, feelings of powerlessness, mm. feelings like they can't do things right, um, and things still end up in with horrific outcomes. Yeah. And, the, and constant panic and feeling how oh. in the world can be so cruel right now. Right. Constant panic. Boy, so, so the, the pandemic and the police brutality, these were things that just brought all of that to the surface? Yes. Wow. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Join KSQD tonight at 6 p.m. for our monthly program, Reflections on Buddhism. Each program features a conversation between Patrick McGinn and the Venerable Tenzin, a local Buddhist nun and teacher. This month's topic is Changing Roles for Women in Buddhism. That's Sunday evening from 6 to 7 on 90.7 FM K-Squid.
Many voices, one station. And now we're back to our bold and impressive guests, Dr. Pettis Perry and Dr. Michael Gatson. The topic we're discussing today is collective trauma, reuniting a dystopian America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. So Pettis and Michael's last uh, section of our our um, interview here, our talk is. What I like to talk about is our keep, stop, start. You know, in these last few minutes, what could listeners keep doing, stop doing, and start doing regarding a collective trauma, leading a meaningful life? Um, Pettis? Uh, well, the process, as we talked about before the break, is really beginning with a look inside and trying to figure out uh, where, where we are. Uh, I believe that People need to continue to challenge authority uh, by applying pressure uh, in whatever capacity they're able, whether it's on social media, sending letters, phone calls, whatever it is, uh, to ensure that we put uh, the kinds of things on the agendas uh, that we want to see happen in our local communities and nationally. Uh, we need to... Uh, to continue to prepare to vote. That's the one thing that I'm most worried about, uh, whether there are going to be too many people who are ill as a result of how we're approaching the pandemic uh, or uh, people not being able to get out and vote. Uh, I'm, I'm really disgusted with how secretaries of state uh, in some uh, states are reducing the number of voting machines in African-American areas while making sure that in Caucasian areas uh, or high Republican areas uh, that they have enough voting machines so that, one, they don't get sick, and, two, they're not standing in line for hours. So we have to uh, continue to do that. We need to educate ourselves about our history. We need to be honest with ourselves about that history as, as much pain as, as is associated with Tulsa uh, and the stuff that, uh, and I'm talking about Juneteenth and, uh, and the aftermath of the massacre uh, 99 years ago and what we saw with the Trump rally in Tulsa at this time, uh, we have to, you know, continue to, to learn about those things. I can't believe the number of people on Facebook who said, oh, I never heard about Tulsa. And uh, in, in one respect, I'm not surprised. In another, I'm totally surprised. So we have to keep educating ourselves. Uh, we have to be the change that we want to see uh, and to do things in the right way, to treat people in the right way, uh, and to make sure that we're living the right kind of life so that we're furthering uh, what we're all trying to see in terms of bringing some level of equality and, and a new way of living. Uh, and uh, make sure that we're voting in people who have our interests. In terms of stop, uh, I would say stop blaming Trump. Trump is a symptom, uh, and he's also a catalyst. Uh, he's a catalyst that has caused absolute mayhem and confusion, and the protests and what's happening with the pandemic are a result of those things. In four years, he has done more to show people what's been happening in this country than we have been able to do in more than 400 years. Uh, so we need to be mindful of what our time is in our history. 
in this moment. Uh, and, you know, I think that we need to continue to prepare for this mass trauma that's going to manifest uh, as we get out of the pandemic uh, and the demonstration. I think that we need to begin to prepare for reconciliation uh, in, a, in a way that I talk about reconciliation with enlightenment. That is, as people get the light bulbs turned on, those aha moments and realize that there actually is a better way uh, for America to be, then we need to have some system of reconciliation so that we're not keeping uh, hurt feelings and harmful feelings buried. I think that that's one of the worst things that we can do from a psychological uh, perspective. Uh, and I think that we need to spend time really uh, thinking about the kind of America that we can create. I'm excited about the possibility of reimagining what this country can look like in the future if we keep on the path we're going. Be involved uh, and active in our democracy. Uh, as Franklin talked about, you know, we've got a republic, but we've also got to keep it. Uh, so voting is the essence of our democracy, and we need to make sure that we protect that and do uh, everything we can. And then the last thing, Jill, is to prepare for a major personal transformation. Uh, because we're, we are actually following, if you look at the literature on transformative learning and transformative behaviors, we're actually following that arc uh, in terms of when things were completely disorienting and now we're working our way through trying to make sense of it and trying to come out on the other side uh, a different, more uh, transformed, more enlightened person. Well, one of the things you were uh, saying there, Pettis, um, about buried feelings reminded me of my favorite Stephen Covey quote, which was, unresolved feelings never die, they just come forth later in uglier ways. Um, exactly. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Michael, keep, stop, start. What should listeners keep doing, stop doing, and start doing? It's about healing from intergenerational trauma. It's accountability and setting boundaries while dealing with historical traumas like slavery and Jim Crow and recent examples like police brutality. Also, we need to be intentional and relentless, creative, and continually connecting with each other using all modes available to us now, finding ways to be productive and in new roles that tap existing strengths and doing business that will hold our economy stable through this crisis. This pandemic is far from a war, but it requires pulling together. And when people realize what collective action can achieve, it can change how they relate to others, resulting in a greater sense of community. Well, also, just before I go to a, our my last question that I want to toss out to you, um, when we were talking about voting, again, I wanted to stay say, um, if you're, keep voting, if you vote, keep voting every election. If you don't vote, start voting, <laughs> um, especially for this upcoming election, and then stop letting uh, people tell you your vote doesn't count, because it does. I have seen... Uh, many times where uh, someone's vote counts. So um, don't let people tell you that your vote doesn't count. Um, take your power back and um, and keep voting. So I wanted to just reemphasize that. Um, and last question, and I'll, I'll start with you, Michael. Um, how can we reunite our 
this polarized, dystopian um, uh, society we have into a new America that works for everyone? I think definitely coming together as a community like we're doing by, you know, protesting together, being united as one, and definitely, like you said, coming out and voting and, you know, making sure our voices are heard and making sure we are putting a voice behind our voices. Pettis? I saw an interesting thing happen after the rally last night in Tulsa where a person, I believe he had on a Black Lives Matter shirt, was having a, we'll say, a loud conversation with someone from uh, MAGA. And that's the beginning. If, if we are not willing to talk with each other, then there is no future. The same things that we are encountering today are going to continue. As I said earlier, we have to own our past we have to embrace each other. We're one nation. If on 9-11, we came together as one nation, it wasn't about, oh, they bombed New York, so it's New York's problem. And we have to think of ourselves as a collective. We have to believe that my doing better is good for you. Your doing better is good for me. Working together, maybe we can create something that that is even better for both of us that we could not create by ourselves. So it's reframing the conversation, and it's being willing to uh, do what my favorite professor uh, used to remind me of all the time, is embrace conflict. Conflict is a natural outgrowth of human behavior. So if we can say, okay, I know you don't like me, I know that there are some issues, uh, we can work past that. And if you don't mind, Jill, I want to take just one quick second and just sure. share a little story. Sure. I moved, when I moved from California to Washington State, I didn't know where I was going. I literally picked a, map, a point on the map as close to the Canadian border as I could make it. Because my original intention was to live uh, on the other side, but I ended up in a small town called Blaine. And I ended up uh, not in the city limits, but outside in the county. Little did I know, when I moved there, I found myself in the middle of an Aryan nation community. Didn't know. And my first day there, or my, the, when uh, I and my, uh, the person that helped me move uh, were offloading the truck, a guy came from across the street and said, hey, look, we're having a party tomorrow. Why don't you come by? Uh, he didn't, I thought it was at his house. It wasn't at his house. So I was going up the street and knocking on doors until I found the place which was at the end of the street. I knocked on the door. I went in the home. Uh, they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, this guy by the name of Steve said that there was a party, and I've been looking, and, uh, and I'm hoping that this is it. The, the uh, man of the house said yes. Well, he interrogated me for three and a half hours, uh, trying to push every button that he could push, and I stayed calm. And at the end of it, when he got tired of doing what he was doing, he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I teach. And he said, well, who do you teach? And I took my finger and I stuck it in his face and I said, people like you. And he backed up and he said, oh, I'd like you. What his M.O. was is he would scare people. But he and I began to have conversations. 
and I got to meet his family. And one day, his youngest kid, his pride and joy, came running to me while I was sitting on the couch, threw his arms around me, and said, Pettis, I love you. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I couldn't reach the dad, I reached the son. It's all about the children. That is a tremendous story. Thank you for sharing that, Pettis. And it, it just also demonstrates, um, you know, we have to stop seeing ourselves as independent and start seeing ourselves as interdependent. And you made an impression on that child. That's a wonderful story. I so enjoyed this conversation. I wish we had more time. I want to thank uh, Be Bold America's engineer, Emily Dunham, and give a huge thank you to our bold guests, Professor Pettis Perry and Professor Michael Gatson from Walden University. Remember, you can uh, uh, their links are on my Be Bold America page on KSQD's website. And next on Be Bold America will be Crushing Democracy from the Pandemic to Protest. We will be speaking with the founder, editor, and publisher, Mark Carlin of BuzzFlash. BuzzFlash.com aggressively exposes the undermining of democracy, and we'll be talking with Mark about democracy being at a crossroads and the many perils of the Trump administration. Don't miss Crushing Democracy from the Pandemic to Protests on Be Bold America, Sunday, July 5th at 5 p.m. Want to listen to this program later? Find the Be Bold America podcast on KSQD website or at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breakers, Radio Public, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz. Many voices, one station. Stay tuned for Reflections on Buddhism with Bridget Reardon. My name is Jill Cody, and thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.